We are living in uncertain times. For many, the ground under their feet, ground they once thought was stable, is shifting. Will things come apart? For many others, the shifting ground is welcome change. Have you heard about Elijah McLean? He was a 23-year-old African-American. He was a massage therapist. He loved animals. Just over a year ago, he purchased an iced tea at a convenience store and was walking home, listening to music and dancing as he walked, waving his arms. He'd sometimes wear a face mask because he felt his chin get cold. Someone called the police and reported suspicious behavior. Soon, Elijah McLean would be dead. As he was tackled by three police officers, among his last words were, I am just different. He apologized, though it is unclear for what. Is this story about race? Is it about mental health? It's certainly about power and maintenance of a status quo. I'm learning what is meant by the word whiteness. I'm coming to see how it has contributed to a brutality in the world and to a distortion of Christian faith. We can pretend that Christian faith and white supremacy are not connected, but that would indeed be pretense. Some choose to defend the mistakes and abuses of history. Such defense will, of course, continue. People are afraid of losing a way of life if they've experienced comfort while others have faced fear or inequality. What is more important, your property value or someone else's life? Do you own property? Did you know that most people do not? Would you give up some of your comfort for the benefit of others? Such things sound almost Christian. However, it has so often been Christians who have fought against moving forward toward a more equal and compassionate society. There have been Christians lined up on the other side as well, in the name of Jesus. There are strands of Christian history. One tradition is called Constantinian, after the Roman Empire, Constantine, who converted to Christianity and then aligned the faith with the state. This strand protects power and status quo. The other strand is the prophetic tradition, which seeks to speak truth to power and aims to work for better than the status quo. Constantinian faith seeks and protects power for believers. Prophetic faith seeks inclusion for all people in the name of Jesus. In hearing and reading the words of Dr. Willie Jennings, I came to see some of the best of the prophetic tradition. My faith was enlivened. I think that yours will be as well. Willie Jennings not only teaches me a better way, he embodies it. I can hear it in his prayers, and I can hear it in his laughter. We've put a bit of a key, like a glossary of terms in the episode notes. Don't let the words that you've rarely heard stop you from taking in the power, the beauty of what is spoken about. Enjoy the episode. In 1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, 
had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. Uh, welcome to part three of the special series that we're doing for Rector's Cupboard that we have called uh, 2020. Is this a horrible year? Uh, part one, we looked at the rise of fundamentalism with Matthew Avery Sutton. In part two, we looked at religious nationalism in the United States with Catherine Stewart. And we're really pleased to welcome for this concluding part of this three-part series, Dr. Willie Jennings, who is at Yale Divinity School Associate Professor of Theology and Africana Studies. In 2010, Dr. Jennings wrote a book called The Christian Imagination, Theology and the Origins of Race, which won the American Academy of Religion Award of Excellence in the Study of Religion. Uh, we have some familiarity. Hi, Allison is here as Hello. well. And we, have some, we, we met uh, Dr. Jennings at a course uh, that you taught out here in Vancouver last July. And we were, um, we just uh, absolutely it loved it. It was so, so good. And so <laughs> we're really, really grateful for you joining us. Uh, we know that you have um, a new book coming out in the fall called After Whiteness. And so finally, the little last little bio things to read here is that uh, Dr. Jennings is an ordained Baptist minister and has served as interim pastor for several North Carolina churches. Um, and uh, Jason Biasi from uh, VST and Duke Divinity. I think Jason knows you from Duke, correct? Oh, yeah. Okay, so he'll be joining us a little later in the conversation. And uh, Dr. Jennings received his MDiv from Th Fuller Theological Seminary and his PhD in Religion and Ethics from Duke. So welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Thank you. For how are you? How are you? So you're at Yale right now? Yes, I am. How are things there generally in terms of, uh, I mean, are, are things still closed? Are things opening up or... Things are, things are still um, closed, but they're opening up slowly. Our governor yeah. did an excellent job of yeah. um, following the lead of the New York governor and making sure okay. we were closed down properly and slowly, so, carefully opening up. So, yeah. Things so are, Connecticut kind of being in the shadow of, of New York is the bigger... Yeah. We've, had, we've had a lot of deaths, a lot of mm. cases. Mm. So he's being very wise, and I'm thankful for a wise governor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well put. Uh, speaking of which, uh, the it's it's really timely that we speak with you um, because of you know what's happening in the United States right now. But it's not just right now. Of course, we understand that, and the things that you speak about and write about so well when you talk about whiteness and and white supremacy in relation to Christianity in the states. Um, we wanted to ask you off the top for your reflection on uh, George Floyd and that murder. Uh, Rayshard Brooks, uh, interesting some of the differences in that in that situation, but but some of the conversation that comes out that can be really upsetting. Uh, Breonna Taylor, the protests that are going on. Um, just let us know kind of how you have been responding and thinking through these things. You well, this is this has been horrible, and it's been very painful to experience. I think all of us who've seen um, the murder of Floyd and who have been seeing all these murders. Um, it's, it's just uh, an intensified moment of pain and anguish to see what this means. And what's been 
heartening is to see so many other people really profoundly upset by this. And, and that's been, you know, that we can call it a, a blessing inside of the curse. The blessing of seeing people recognizing that they are, that they truly are inside something sinister and horrible and um, no longer able to really hide from it or deaden their senses from what they're inside of. So I, I have been, I have been heartened by that, but mm -hmm. it shows that the, the work ahead of us is mm -hmm. tremendous because, um, you know, the policing in the states and the policing around the world, as we're learning now, um, that's a symptom of a much larger problem. Mm -hmm. The larger problem has to do with the practices of control and surveillance tied supremacy, white supremacy, and mm -hmm. we have to we have to see what we're inside of to understand that um, the responses now are really angled toward challenging uh, what, what that has meant. You know, we, we've defined safety. We've defined safety in so many places in the West uh, on top of violence. Which is to say that we have imagined safety to only be achievable through violence. And, um, now, for the first time, I think for many people, uh, they're being asked to actually think what constitutes, what's the composition of safety? Mm -hmm. And I think for those of us who are Christian, we've always had a different composition for that. Unfortunately, we've been pretty lazy in our thinking <laughs> about how safety is composed for us. But you must have experienced some... I think pushback maybe is a word that isn't the correct one, but in in your work, particularly in theological realms, when you're talking about some of this stuff through the years, and so for you, you come to this moment in the United States, and obviously there's a bit of an of course, but you must have seen people reticent to admit the sinister things that we're inside of, that, that there's this... You, talk, you recommended that we read the book White Fragility for yeah. the class that we took with you. And it speaks about some of this, that there is, you know, um, African-American people are, are being, uh, you know, beaten up and murdered and stuff. But yet so often those protecting the, the status quo, whether you know, white people or whatever, are their feelings are hurt by, by being accused of being racist or something. Have you seen where, how have you, uh, dealt with this reticence on the part of people to admit the sinister things that we're in. Yeah, it's um, it's the it's part of the resistance, the the many strategies of resistance that so many people of European descent for centuries have learned how to operate in, and um, especially Christians, well-meaning Christians. Uh, who um, want so desperately to imagine uh, a world shaped by individual ethics, individual morality, and that, you know, society is built upon, you know, people being nice to one another. And, you know, I, I understand that sentiment, you know, but as, again, as a Christian, we understand that, you know, that's really bad theology. <laughs> <laughs> That's your whole world built on individuals just <laughs> each other. But, but yeah. 
many people, many people, um, the, their resistance starts from that kind of really bad theological vision. Then it moves into um, really weird ideas of accountability. You know, um, so so for some people, they you know the first question they ask is, um, what did George Floyd do? Yeah. What 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 are these people doing that have, that have brought upon them this police activity? And you know, so what you find is that you you have these levels of resistance. And what I've always tried to do is to invite people into a deeper reflection on their faith and mm. see their faith as questioning um, these these profound defensive strategies that they've learned. And that's that's, that's the real yeah. point because so so many Christians, um, they you know, I should say, so many Christians of European descent really want to be Christian. Uh, I, mm -hmm. I like. The benefit of the doubt, and but I think for for so many they have learned these um, profound strategies of defense tied to whiteness, mm. that and to introduce them to them is already painful. Even beyond them making use of ways of overcoming, but just to introduce them to the fact that they have learned to be so defensive about something that is really a foreign body upon them. <laughs> Yeah, it must it must be disheartening. It's in some ways to feel like you have to apologize, you know. Or I know you probably don't feel that, but well, but to shouldn't. see that pain and then yeah. to go like, I'm sorry, I'm upsetting you or something. You know? That uh, but this is this is some of the effects of whiteness in the class that we took with you, and that class was um, looking particularly at the Book of Acts. And for me, I told you this then. Um, even as someone who was a pastor for you know a few decades, Acts was never one of my favorite books. I, I uh, until until I took this class with you, uh, because and and some of it was the lens through which you taught it and read it and wrote your commentary. Um, and you speak there about the distinction between empire and diaspora. Uh, you say things like power ought not to be power over people, but power for people. Tell us about these concepts of empire and diaspora and how they might relate to, you know, where we are today. Yeah. Well, when you read the book of Acts, you know, as I, as I uh, read it, you know, you, you have these, the, this dynamic of um, life within empire, life within Rome's sensibilities and Rome's reach, which is a reach not only into the body, but a reach into the land, not only into the land, but into the practices of everyday life. But you also have running through the book of Acts, which is seen in all the gospels, but it really is pronounced and intense in the book of Acts, is diaspora, Jewish diaspora, mm -hmm. and, the, and the anxieties and the um, struggles and intensities of life as diaspora, life living in between many places, living in enclaves in many places, knowing that you are not in charge. Mm -hmm. And so it is, it is a dynamic that we continue to face. Immigrants in places where they are, they are diaspora, but they are also inside of empire. And people who imagine themselves as belonging primarily to empire, belonging primarily to the way the good, the true, the beautiful, and the noble have been configured around a nation and mm -hmm. its stories, its legacies, its myths, its ideology. And yeah. here's the thing about it. Christianity comes to life in the midst of that dynamic. Mm. 
Dr. Jennings. Sorry. In your class, you mentioned how, uh, and you spoke about kind of this, this particular European sense of like self-determination and individual um, consequences and kind of an individual kind of life. Um, and you talked about how like God answers every request for self-determination with the desire to join with those who we don't want. And it's so, <laughs> it's so beautiful that you speak about how in Christian faith it is um, so fundamental that, that we, we are individual, but we have to understand that we exist within this larger context. And that larger context includes people we don't want, people that we do, but like, we, we don't have the choice in that. God doesn't really give that to us. That's right. You're exactly right. And I, I think that's the, that's the power right at the, right at the very beginning of the book of Acts. And um, this, this is where, for those of us who are Christian, we have, to, we have to understand that diversity for us opens to a much more intense invitation. Mm -hmm. So in Acts 1, the disciples, when they're looking at this resurrected Jesus with all this power, I mean, he's risen from the dead. He's overcome. He didn't, over, he didn't just overcome death. He overcame violence, which we only remember this, right? Uh, Rome, play, Rome made use of its most powerful technology crucifixion and they assumed that once crucified the the acknowledgement of their power is clear and here is jesus resurrected not simply from death but from crucifixion and the disciples look upon him and they and the, the, the reality of that all power is truly in his hands comes to them. And then they ask the question, now that you have all power, <laughs> let's take over. And Jesus answers that request with um, the most profound answer that we as Christians have yet to understand is the, the answer to the question about power and self-determination that Jesus gives through the spirit is the desire for other people. Yeah. Oh, fully into so beautifully put. <laughs> other people. That my self-determination as a people is bound to my love, not simply for myself, yes, love for myself and my people, but to allow that love to now enter fully into love for others, not to eradicate or negate or sublimate love for my people, but to draw it into its full reality inside love for others. And not just any others, generically speaking, but the very <laughs> people we would prefer not to be drawn into, yeah. not to be involved with. Do Those. you, so when you see the protests, do you, does some of what you just said kind of well up in you? Do you see, we're often, we hear when we watch the coverage, the distinction between say 1968 and now. And, and we've heard everybody from, you know, Reverend Al Sharpton to others saying, um, this is different this time because when I'm out marching, uh, most of the people around me are, are white people or a lot of them are white people. Um, do you see some positive in some of what you're seeing in, in the streets 
Yeah. As a reflection of what you just said. I always, you know, I, you know, as in the preface of my commentary, I talked about a lot of my thinking about this came from being a part of the moral Monday marches in North Carolina when I was at right. my former institution. And so I've always seen protests as um, a, a potential, yeah. in, the, in the old language of proto illegalium, uh, you know, a before the gospel possibility. That is to say, oh, people yeah. who from all walks of life join together for a moment to, to speak a truth together is a is a wonderful thing and so i i do i do appreciate that and i do appreciate this moment my hope and prayer is that more people can understand the significance of this you know mm -hmm. it, it could be it could be part of the uh covet 19 effect as some people yeah. are saying that folks are, are more, are more uh, attuned to suffering because of this yeah. um and, and if that's the case i'm fine with that but what's yeah. great about it yeah it's uh you actually protesting you have one of the lines or things you taught in the class that we took last year was that helped me in, in my own uh christian faith but then also thinking about my my work in in that faith you had a uh you identified it as the word of god against the word of god that i thought was a, a brilliant and beautiful way of putting it that 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 uh, some of the things we've talked about with the first two guests in this series uh, the understanding that you had with Christian nationalists or with some fundamentalist expressions, the idea that our interpretation is the only interpretation. Like, so they wouldn't even say it that way. They would just say, the word of God says. And, and you bring out this line, the word of God against the word of God. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, it's, um, and, and it comes in part from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's um, work and his, and his important legacy. You know, where where the um, confessing church was were word of God word of God against the German nationalist church, mm -hmm. but um, in in the book of Acts, what's so profound is that it's exactly the struggle in Acts ten and eleven, where God is speaking to Peter of the future, and Peter standing in the present faithfulness as he understood it, resisting the future faithfulness. And, and so it is word of God, Peter recite, reciting to God, God's own word. No, yeah. I will not do that. <laughs> no, you will do this. No, I will not do that. But this Three is for, for us yeah. in this moment, I think for Christians in the West, especially Christians, you know, in our part of the, of the world, um, we, we have not really reckoned with the living God who is bound to the scripture, that the scripture gives witness to the living God and the living God will speak and does speak and is always speaking to call us forward, call us forward into the future God wants. And so the um, to use the Bible for, uh, again, a false sense of safety mm. against the spirit of God is always to mishear what God is saying. And, and, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to think about this as wild and unruly mysteries floating around us that we have to listen to. We, we have to think about what's at stake in our life together. And the word of God that is against the word of God is the word of God that's calling us to life together against the word of God that wants to us to live comfortably segregated 
separated mm. and quite comfortable in it. Mm -hmm. The, um, of course, in previous conversations with you, we could ask you for like a reading list or something. Maybe we'll do that later. We'll put, we'll put it in the episode notes or something because uh, I read a couple of the uh, books that you uh, recommended previously. Uh, one of them was the book Slave Ship oh, yeah. by Marcus Redeker. Um, I found it just devastating. I even even right now thinking about it, I I, I just kind of think it it was uh, it depicted so well. It, I mean, don't mean to say good, but the violence and the dehumanization and the and and then there are things in there that um, you know, in terms of safety and power and the narratives we tell ourselves. Uh, so obviously, in the evangelical circles. This story we tell ourselves about John Newton and, and the song Amazing Grace, right? I once was lost, but now I'm found. And so when I was, you know, growing up in the evangelical church, it was like, well, he used to be, he used to, ha you know, be a slave shipper. And, and, uh, and then, but look at what he did. He wrote this song, but it came out in that book that the, uh, when they found his journals, he, he wrote that song while he was still, you know, trading slaves, operating slave ships. And he was asking God for God's blessing upon this important work. Um, it, the reason I'm bringing that up is it, it begins to show us how interwoven the legacy of this kind of white supremacy with Christian faith, the a yeah. distorted idea of Christian virtue is. Uh, yeah. You've spent a lot of your time writing about this and talking about this. Our listeners, some of them, will even bristle at the phrase, you know, at the, at the juxtaposition saying white supremacy and Christianity. So tell us a little bit more about this connection between white, white supremacy and Christianity. Yeah, this is, this is one of the most difficult things, I think, for many Christians to hear about because they've never gotten the memos on these things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and many of them are like, well, what is he talking about? What? Um, the, the, so let's, let's look at maybe three levels of problem. The first level of problem is that many people don't understand that whiteness isn't biological. It isn't a mm. given. It didn't drop from heaven. It's not a part of the natural order of things. No one is born white. White is a creation built upon centuries of um, domination by people of European descent. And it is, it is both a way of seeing and a way of being seen. It is a way of organizing the world with people of European descent at the very center of that organization and then having the power to carry out that vision. And for many immigrant groups coming to the United States or what we now, the United States or Canada or Latin America, for many immigrant groups, when they came, they understood that they had to become white. They were mm -hmm. not white until getting off the boat. Becoming white was a, was a reshaping and assimilation, as the word has been used, of their, of their very existence, stripping away their European, European um, past and becoming something called white. Now, a lot of people don't understand that they, because they don't remember the legacy. They don't remember the horror and the pain and the tears 
of their ancestors who came and were brutalized because they were seen as dirty and you can fill in the blank and from mm -hmm. the old world. Mm -hmm. And the years and dec the decades and centuries of stripping away as quickly as possible, as much as possible, anything that reminded people that they were of the old world. So, that, so we have to think about at that level to, to talk about whiteness and to talk about who a person is, we're talking about two things that have been joined together as a project that people then imagine is just one thing. Mm -hmm. That's first. The second is the recognition that Christianity, one's Christian faith, has often been used as a crucial engine to help accomplish whiteness. So Christianity, it's, you know, it's practices, it's, you know, it's doctrines, it's way of life, it's ecclesial shape, mm -hmm. all being made to help immigrants become assimilated. Christianity itself woven inside this, this reality of whiteness. Now, I didn't say this with the first thing, but let's keep this in mind. The Christianity that is created has already itself been produced in a particular way because of mm -hmm. whiteness. Right? So that's that's the second level. Then the, so there's a third level that we want to keep in mind, and that is what happens when you are able to assimilate, have your Christianity help you become fully white. You're no longer seen as that dirty Italian or dirty mm -hmm. Irish or dirty Dutch person. You're just, you're just a, a, a good citizen of this new republic, whether we're talking about Canada or the United States. So then what, what do you do then? You then create multiple structures, geographic structures, educational structures, cultural structures mm -hmm. that would solidify and sustain that reality of identity without anybody ever having to say, we've made it, we're white. Yeah. <laughs> the very structures mm -hmm. themselves do that work. And so you don't have to say anything about it. It's, it's been done by the very structure itself. And then your children are born inside of that. And then they just imagine that this is just the way things are. Yeah. But when they hear about, when, when they hear about all the, was that? I thought I heard something. Oh, I know. Um, when 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 um, they hear about all these cultural others, these people of color who are on the outside, bubbling up and criticizing and 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 upset about the structure, the children who've been born inside of it think, well, this just has to do with treating people nice. Well, just treat everybody nice, and then everything mm -hmm. it will be fine. Not realizing that they are deep inside the structures of whiteness. So then what happens is when, so when I'll talk to people about this, I have to explain to them these three re levels of reality and how um, they work together. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? It means that whiteness is not a stable state. Uh. It, is an, it is an energy that flows through so many structures that continues to give density and volume to the way people imagine the world, that, that their Christianity has to somehow be pulled from it uh. <laughs> so that we can then see it, see this thing 
that has been imagined as so deeply a part of what it means to be Christian for them. And, and you're hopeful that th that can be accomplished or we can... Well, yeah. I, 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 it, because here's the thing about it. it, it while it's, it's centuries in the making, mm. it takes constant energy for the sustaining. Ah. <laughs> And, you know, so th and that's that's what we're okay. facing um as christians we understand that um that, you know there's a, there's an ancient doctrine that we hold on to called it's creation out of nothing that god created everything out of nothing and that nothing in and of itself is eternal nothing in and of itself is unchangeable only god and so we always have to remember that no matter what the structure is no matter what the nation the society no matter what it is it can change because it's Amen. creaturely. Nothing Amen. eternal. Amen. And so, oh. you know, things can things Amen. can change. Now, um, here's but here's the problem. What we're up against is not an immovable, unchangeable reality called whiteness or racism. What we're up against is is an energy turned in the wrong direction, constantly reinforcing, trying to sustain. The status quo and what has to happen mm. is turn that energy yeah. in a different direction and that's the challenge because mm. once you turn the energy in a different direction people start to see not only new possibilities but they see the crumbling of what's mm. what has always existed they see what the they've yeah what they've counted as certain yeah, yeah. Do you think there's been some some reticence on the the part of uh, particularly white Christians to engage with these conversations because it simply just costs them too much, too much comfort, too much familiarity, that they're afraid that all of a sudden the privilege that they've enjoyed, that they maybe don't want to recognize that they've enjoyed, mm -hmm. will all of a sudden they're going to have to be more careful, more thoughtful. Um, that is exactly right, Allison. The, the, the problem is, is that it, it's, it requires a rethinking of the spiritual discipline for us Christians. Mm. Um, part of the reality of whiteness, the practice of whiteness, is to always move toward comfort, always yeah. to move toward what um, uh, Robin DeAngelo calls racial equilibrium, to a, a level of comfort in uh, living in this racial world. For many years, I taught, and I talked about this in the, the essay I did for Christian Century. Many years, yeah. years, I taught this course on on race and Christianity in the Black Church. And every semester, and there'd be a point in the semester when students would look me in the face, and they'd, they'd have this look in their mm -hmm. face like, "Dr. James, please make it stop. I don't want to feel this anymore. Please, could you just stop?" And I would always look back, and sometimes I would just express it to them and say, "No." no <laughs> I can't stop it. And in fact, I don't want it to stop because you cannot be healed. You cannot move forward. You cannot be a healer mm. unless you live into this. And what you're living into is the tearing away, the pulling mm -hmm. away of the work of being Christian from the work of being white. And that's, that's a struggle for so many people. So, and of course, yeah. This gets back to what you asked me earlier, and that is, you know, so many strategies of avoidance, so many strategies of um, um, uh, learned ignorance, as I call it, mm. are tied to wanting 
to feel comfortable. I just want, yeah. Yeah. I want everybody to like each other so I don't have to talk about this or think about this. Can we just get on with other important, more important things and this? Can, you know, this is so just, I'm just so tired of this. I, and I understand that. But, but the reality is, is that, as a, especially as a Christian, to the extent that you want to find comfort, you will always move away from your healing. The, Allison asked about the, um, you know, the response from people who, uh, you know, more in the, the white expressions of, of Christian faith. Mm-hmm. What, what about um, in, in the, I don't know, it's the wrong term, right? But African-American community. Producer Rick here just mentioned to me um, these figures like uh, this Candace Owens, Candace Owens, Rick? Count Candace Owens, Alan West, people who are uh, African-American, but are seem to be protecting the status quo. Um, so there's the sense of how people who are white, you know, and that's how we're, that, that's how they would describe themselves, um, responding. But but w- how do you respond to people like the Candace Owens of the world? And how, like, is that just really really upsetting to you? Or well, it's you know, it, it, this has been a reality from the very beginning. Mm. And by the very beginning, I mean from the very beginning of the modern slave trade. There, there, there have always been um, people of African descent, and it's okay to say black people. There have always been black folks yeah. who um, either they have not seen clearly what's at stake mm-hmm. in um, joining with um, the project of whiteness, or they see clearly, but they mm-hmm. see um, something that's not really there. That is, they see that there's the possibility of full and complete assimilation. Mm-hmm. And by assimilation, I don't mean that they want to be white, it's that they they think that the proper way to be in the world, uh, the proper way to be in the world has already been introduced mm-hmm. to whiteness. They would uh, never say I want to be white, but they just say that this is the proper way to be right. in the world. Right. And so that there's something, there's something at stake in defending the structures of formation that exist. So you found a way to exist in the system. Right, 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 right. So you, so you, you remember, um, there, there's that, there's that really frightening movie called The Gangs of New York, right? Oh yeah. Where Daniel Day Lewis plays that butcher who, uh, wants, and then toward the end of that movie, he has that incredible scene where he said, where just before the fight. He says, you know, these filthy, dirty immigrants are coming here and destroying, basically, I'm paraphrasing, basically destroying the project of America, what we could become. And we must, we must hold them back. He, he himself an immigrant. Yeah. yeah. You ask yourself, how is it uh, that he just, as yeah. an immigrant could, could yeah. see that attacking these other immigrants is actually in his best interest? Now, you know, um, there's always been a reality of what in the 80s we called black neocons, neoconservatives, who mm-hmm. for the life of them, all of them understood themselves to be doing a work that was helpful to um, the black mm. here and abroad. That is trying to suggest strategies of living that would allow us to fully enter into uh. the possibilities of what America and what the West offered. And in order to get to those possibilities, there's certain 
there are certain points of criticism, certain points of nagging that we have to give up. And there's certain mm, things we have to recognize. Oh, and that's, that's what's at play. Yeah. And, and I, I understand that. I also understand that, you know, that mo many of them, maybe most of them are Christian. Mm. And that, well, that, uh, that makes it tough, even tougher because they, they are Christian. They do believe very strongly in the faith. Mm. But the faith that they imagined, they imagine is um, is at stake. Yeah. Uh, is not the faith, is not the yeah. faith of their parents and their and their grandparents. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You you say um, that we need to learn how to draw new circles of belonging because the structures of segregation run so deep. Um. How do we do that? Like I feel like. I feel like it, it must feel so, in a way, disheartening trying to figure out how to to recreate better systems yeah. in this current. Mm -hmm. Like <laughs> it's 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 both the most difficult and the easiest thing to do. Hmm. It, it's the most difficult because it involves us actually now touching the thing that most people in the West, especially Christians, have been loathed to touch. And that is the way neighborhoods are shaped. Mm. It involves rethinking our daily living. And so much of whiteness, so much of white supremacy depends upon geographic segregation and control. Mm -hmm. it, it has to do with how the very shape of our living um, reinforces identity or how the very shape of our living can begin to crumble forms of identity and open up new other, other possibilities. And this is where the great fight is right now. This is the great fight. In order to, for any community to overcome the racial strife that's facing it, you have to get the developers, the real estate people, <laughs> everybody who has anything to do with the built environment together and say, we're going to bring a moral calculus to this. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, you want to see a fight. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Real fight. Uh, I want to invite Try uh, Try another, another friend of ours. And this is someone who has uh, introduced us to you. And that was through uh, bringing you here to Vancouver, Vancouver to teach at VST last summer. Uh, Jason Biasi, you're there. You can appear. Hi, Jason. You guys know hey, each everybody. other, so you know, <laughs> just touch base a little bit. Ask ask a good question, Jason. Uh, maybe not even about this, but <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Jennings, it's such a joy to see your face and hear your voice, and I'm Always I'm good. struck by how when I when I want to tell people about you, um, I mean you've you've won prizes and awards and recognition and accolades. I find myself wanting to say, but you got to hear his laugh. Oh, <laughs> so good. And, and I'm struck by how there's something in that. Amen. And I wonder if you could talk to how Christianity is first something sensed um, before it's something intellectually uh, unpacked. I mean, if, is, is there something to, um, I mean, obviously you didn't strategize your laugh as a pedagogy, right? But, but there is something bodily. Unless you did. <laughs> Unless you did. But there is something bodily and intimate about 
a faith based on the incarnation, right? Mm -hmm. No, that's an excellent, that's an excellent question, Jason. It's, you know, we, we always want to remember that um, the, the faith begins with a profound question to um, Jewish people. What are you going to do about these Gentiles who are smiling at you right now? <laughs> what are you going to do about these Gentiles who um, are about to have a meal with you? And um, who, guess what? They are speaking in these heavenly languages and these other languages just like you. What are you going to do about them? I guess, and as, as the disciples said to Peter, I guess we got to baptize them. <laughs> <laughs> So, and they baptized them. And then in Acts 11, the disciples say, you know, they're, you know, we always have to remember that. And when I want to come back to this later on. In Acts 11, the disciples there are furious with Peter. Furious. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're so angry they can barely talk. And when they, when they can't talk, they say, why did you go among the Gentiles? And Peter, being the great apologist for Gentiles, said, I didn't want to. God made me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to know what God is God. So, um, so, and you know, at that, and so he then tells them what happened. And then the passage says in Acts 11, there was silence. Hmm. No words, no doctrine, no, no reciting of scripture, silence. And then after the silence, rejoicing mm -hmm. that God had, um, brought in us and it was done through a meal it was done through an illicit meeting and it was done through the spirit falling so we 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 are we we are a bodily reality a bodily witness that is a question we are a question to people what do you do when we love you and we're not supposed to what do we do and maybe mm -hmm. maybe not loving you fully yet but we certainly love this one that you love mm -hmm. now because we love this one that you love we have accepted this one that you have accepted what now what now you know our, our faith because it is bodily um it already sets us up for a better way to understand our thinking and so our thinking is always woven into the body and always calls to the body. That's what makes this moment, this COVID moment, mm. such a challenge for us, uh, we people of faith. That there is, there is an anguish for so many of us right now because we know bodily touch is part of our orthodoxy. Mm. Mm. You mentioned orthodoxy reminds me of sort of a split personality that lots of students of yours felt uh, at Duke and I presume now at Yale, right? On one hand, you're <laughs> learning a, a kind of romance of orthodoxy. Like if we can just get this minor point in Thomas Aquinas right, like the kingdom will come. But then on the other hand, we're hearing, well, wait a minute, there's a disease social imagination in white Christianity and Thomas Aquinas did not interrupt the middle passage. Um, and I just wonder, you you say yes to both and a lot of people say no to one to sustain the other right but how do you hold together the romance of orthodoxy with um 
a recognition of the brutal history, um, not only present despite the church, but propped up by and yeah. sustained yeah. and incessantly blessed by white churches? That's a great question, Jason. I think there's two things you got to do. And both these things are exceedingly difficult. The first is that you have to uh, make, both in your imagination and in your practices, make all those Christian voices of the past, co-voices with you, alongside you, hmm. all together trying to uh, learn how to be in the spirit of God. So, you know, and that, and in that regard, you, do, you don't wind up taking from the voices of the past their humanity. Give them their humanity. You don't, you don't, you don't put them on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. but, you, mm -hmm. but you do listen to them as voices of sisters and brothers in the past. And of course, not enough sisters being listened to from the past. We all know this. Mm -hmm. uh, but you, you, um, you, you, you make them co, co listeners for the Spirit of God. That's the first, and that's that's difficult because we have such a hierarchy. Of, of intellectual voices in theology and in the and in the academy, and we have to overcome that. But the other thing that we have to do, and this is the more difficult thing, I've, in my more recent book, I'm trying to talk about this. That we have to challenge the formation, Jason. The formation, the formation that is at heart in theological education is very, very sick. All theological education. In the, and not only in the Western world, but wherever theological education has been formed based on the Western world. All theological education has as its overarching dominant image of formation, the creation of a white self-sufficient man mm. who embodies three, what I call demonic virtue. I was actually just gonna bring those up. Possession, yeah. role, and mastery. And that is what drives so much of the energy, the the, the energy that of the of theological education. And we have what we have to do is press against that and put in its place a new image. And the image I suggest is Jesus and the crowd. That what we're forming people to do, to be are people who can gather other people. That's what we're trying to do. Now, that is a fundamentally different image than the image that drives so much of it. And so Beautiful. what does that mean? It means that, you know, as you know, I've been, been involved in theological education for many decades, and I was an academic dean for many years, and I've watched this movie, and um, the number of people we have damaged in theological education, is I would dare say almost equal to the number of people we have helped mm. in education, primarily because there are so many people who their lives have been wounded through theological education because they realized at some point in time they could never become that man. Mm. The um, you mentioned the the you know, bodily, the importance of kind of faith in terms of the body. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I'm thinking back to something I read by ta Coates, 
Um, I think it was around, it might have been a reflection in Atlantic or something, or maybe it was in one of his books. Must have been a, an article, because he was talking, I believe, about Michael Brown, like, so one of the African-American people who was killed. And, and in, in this case, I think this individual had been like lying on the street with a blanket covering their body hours after they had already died. And Coates was reflecting on this, and a couple things stood out to me in that, because thinking of the, the importance of the body, um, he was saying that, that largely the American enterprise has been built on the subjugation of, of the black body. Um, but then he reflected on, I think it was his upbringing in the African-American church and his kind of rejection of that. that and, and it was interesting to me because he said, you know, the, the, the arc of history is long and bends toward justice and kind of talking about hope. This, this is good. It's helpful. But he said, it's not helpful to Michael Brown lying there right now. And if I recall it correctly, he basically said, that's one of the reasons I'm moving towards like atheism, <laughs> because I haven't heard something more useful. <laughs> um, and so when you say a, a new image, Jesus in the crowd, I, and I'm, it's an idealistic thing to me, and I wouldn't want to um, you know, speak down to somebody like ta quotes, but I, I think I respect his talk of atheism there. Um, even though I'm a person of Christian faith. I, I wonder how you reflect on, you know, whether your own upbringing and expression within the African-American church and how people are responding now. Uh, let us know how you respond even to that ta Coates thing. Well, you know, there's always been, I've talked about this, there's always been uh, a long, let's use the word tradition, a tradition of Black folks who um, they, they can't be Christian. There's something about white Western Christianity that yeah. makes it possible for them to be Christian. And in fact, you know, um, the reality of it is, is that these folks, are, they've always been there and they're in church. <laughs> they go to church every Sunday. They just don't, yeah. they just don't believe it. I, 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 I grow with people like that. They go every Sunday. They, they just don't believe it. They're there because of family, they're with friend, the community, but they don't believe it. And um, you know, there, there's a here's here's how that history has always run. When when um, the colonialists brought Christianity to Africans, they responded in three ways. The first um, uh, response was, "This is garbage. Absolutely not. Just get, please stop, stop, stop. No, no more." There, there was a second response, uh, and this was a response often at the at the at the end of a gun in which, okay, yes, I believe, mm -hmm. just don't kill me. I believe, yes, of course, yes, I believe. Mm -hmm. Coercive and, conversion. Right, kind of, right. And, yeah. and they live the faith as a foil. And inside of it, they, they continue to practice whatever they, they, their, their indigenous religion or they, they did other things, but they, they, they just did it so that they would not be killed or that they could survive. Mm -hmm. There was a third response in which people mm -hmm. actually came to believe. Yeah. But even with that third response, it, it has a part A and a part B. Part A are people who they came to believe fully assimilated. Yes, you're right. Mm. We were devils, but now God, thanks to you, we are, we are saved. And their faith was rooted in self-hatred. And there are, people, there are people of color around the world who hate their own cultures and who yeah. want to fully assimilate and be white. But then there's a group mm. B, 
<laughs> Thank God for the group B. Yeah. The group B are those who became Christian, seriously Christian, but also understood that there's something wrong with white Christianity. Yeah. Now, here's the thing about it. All those groups are in church today. <laughs> is, it, is it hard? All those, groups, all those groups are in the barbershop. They're in the community. They're in the beauty shop. They're, uh, they're, they're in schools. They're, you know, you meet a minimum college, you know. So Tanisi Coates is in that group. He's in that uh, line group. That's such oh, a great yeah. description. I, I really appreciate that. I find it really helpful. Uh, are you able to discern fairly easily who Here's is in what group? What group. <laughs> Again? Are you are you um, easy? Are you able to discern fairly easily who is in what group? Oh in... yeah, oh yeah, that's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That, that, right. only takes, that only takes about like three minutes. They could be talking about sports. They could they could talk about sports, and you'd be able to determine it. From yeah, absolutely, that. you yeah. you know it right yeah. away, and it's and it's okay. <laughs> it's okay because you know yeah. realize that even with someone who's saying that you know um, performing a kind of atheism, I always smile. And say, okay, I understand what you're performing. Yeah. And um, the, the reality of it is, is that um, belief as it must be lived, belief as it must be lived, must always entertain doubt. It must always hold on to doubt as not a problem, but as a, a crucial aspect of belief itself. You remember in the in the in the in the Gospel of Matthew, what people often forget is at the Great Commission, the Great Commission, they they are there. It says, uh, you know, he rose all parts and there, there were some there who doubted the disciples. Yeah. Some <laughs> doubted. They were looking. They were doubting. I said, this is great. These are the doubting disciples are right there, and he sends. He says to the doubting ones, go. Yeah. That's so right. Awesome. Uh, Doctor, I, 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 oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was to say, Dr. Jennings, uh, the the article that that you sent to us, um, you you talk about your own personal faith being invaded. You say uh, that uh, your Black Christianity had been invaded first by the charismatic movement with its endless monotonous praise music. Love that, and then by the prosperity gospel with its endlessly mercantile theology. So good. Yeah. <laughs> as well as by the blinding visions of patriarchy, masculinity, and capitalism that both movements commended. Um, first of all, it's just an amazing quote. I think you're a wonderful writer. That's aside from the point. But if you could talk to us a little bit about like how you exist and that your faith is invaded by these different movements within... Um, I, I think sometimes that, that black Christianity can be cast as this, like, this monolith that this is how black Christianity functions. And I think that I don't suspect that that's to be the case. <laughs> oh, no, that's a great question because, you know, uh, in the 80s, this was, the moment, this was a moment in which so many people who commented on the history of Christianity or the status of Christianity, whether they're sociologists or historians or theologians, they were missing this moment. Mm -hmm. they, they did not understand um, the um, diversity within not only the mm. black community, but the Latinx community, immigrant mm -hmm. communities, they do not understand that diversity, especially when, the, when that aspect, that, that reality, the charismatic movement hit us like a, mm. like a yeah. And in that moment, what you saw 
were people um, utterly confused mm. about what their faith was supposed to be and, mm. and contorting it even more. But the, the difficulty is that at that moment, um, we also saw the power of white Christianity to invade and to assimilate and to imitate. So you had, mm -hmm. you know, you, you, this, might, this might have been before your time, but you know, the, 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 the charismatic movement when it first started was, it was, it was, it wasn't just white, it was painfully white. <laughs> It was so I can believe white. that. <laughs> it was so white. Oh my God. And the music. Oh my. I, I remember I'm, I'm sorry. You know, I remember going to praise service and I and I, I was sitting in praise service. This was in the 80s. And I was sitting there and thought, how many more guitars can you get on this stage? <laughs> it must have been like 15 guitars. All the guitars, Dr. Jennings. All of them. How many, how many, guitar, how many guitars do you need for this? Like, <laughs> And every song sounded exactly the same, you know. Yeah, well, there you go. Well, I mean, to play like worship guitar, you need to know four chords. That's all you need. Like, oh my God! But the problem was is that for so many people, I mean, I was I was a young man, and for so many of us, we were being told mm. if you if you if you want to be a true worshiper of God, mm. walk away from all that other kind of music that. Mm. Community or any other community, this is the this is the music that ushers you truly into the presence of God. All that other stuff, ah, this is what it, ushers you truly into the presence of God. Like, what? It's it's like a reintroduction of colonialism again, coming right. in and saying, right. "Oh, we know how to do Christianity better than you do." Right. And the thing is, it's still unfortunately, you know, it, you know those 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 um, impulses remain strong, but mm -hmm. it, it it did divide so many and continues to divide so many communities. You know, um, as as most most of you probably are aware, I mean, so many schools, theological institutions, are are resourced in terms of their student body by students who come out of Pentecostal and Charismatic mm -hmm. contexts. They they are the dominant source of students, mm. and many schools are yet to understand the anguish they bring, having been shaped in in the difficulty of what came to us. And now I'm not saying this because I think the charismatic movement was a bad thing. I actually think it was a good thing. I think mm -hmm. what was the problem is the whiteness that yeah. carried the charismatic movement and continues to carry so many aspects of Pentecostal charismatic independent church life right now. It's still, it's still very white and it's still very tied to an assimilation into a particular vision of how to hear the spirit of God. As very white, it's like God only, God only listens to certain music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. he loves guitars. God loves guitars. <laughs> what? what? How does this work? The now in the that, same that, quote, diversity will go back to old Europe. I mean, so that's the. I mean, like friends, uh, no, no. In the same quote, you mentioned the prosperity gospel. And I think, you know, there may be a distinction there. You say the charismatic movement, there's so much that's good. Um, the prosperity gospel is, you know, tell us about that invasion, because in my observation, the prosperity gospel is going strong right now. It's going strong and, in the world. And in and, the United States, it's aligned now with the far right, and it's right. in the Oval Office, and it's everywhere. And so tell us about that invasion. You can, you can and, I, and, and some historians, I mean, like my wonderful former colleague, 
Kate Bowler, she's expert at this. So, you know, she could yeah. with one hand tied on her back. But um, part of it, we, we recognize that there has always been, even with the early charismatic movement that wasn't necessarily tied to the, the prosperity gospel movement, they've always been closely aligned. I mean, they've, they've kind mm. of, you know, the ones always hovered near the other one. And then when the charismatic, when, they, when the prosperity gospel really started to take off, it absorbed so much yeah. of what was a part of the charismatic movement. It absorbed the music. It absorbed the mm-hmm. vision of, of spirituality. It absorbed how you hear the spirit of God. It absorbed all that. And and then brought it inside of an um, incredibly powerful vision. And so he, here's why it has mm-hmm. been, it seems to be so powerful for so many parts of the world. Why? Because it is a direct, it is a direct response to poverty in the world. Mm. It's a horrible response, but it's a direct response to poverty in the world. And it's a shame that the mainline church and other churches haven't recognized that poverty is something we should be addressing constantly. And unfortunately, we walked away from that, but the charismatic movement, so Mm. what did it do when, when I was, a younger man, uh, <laughs> what the charismatic, what the, what the uh, prosperity gospel movement said to people like me was that, listen, God doesn't want you poor. Yeah. Doesn't want your yeah. poor. Doesn't want anybody poor. Poverty is the result of sin, not your individual sin, but it's the result of sin. So poverty now, becomes a spiritual, um, yeah, mm-hmm. tactic. It's right. So what, shortcoming. Right. So what has to happen is that you have to draw your faith in God right to the site of your poverty and recognize that God has all the money, all the resources that you mm. ever need. All you have to do is step out on faith and believe God. Now, here's the thing about it. Almost every element in what I just said, mm. slivers of it have always been a part <laughs> Oh, um, right. you know, so many minority and indigenous communities, slivers of it. But mm-hmm. when it got, it got woven together inside the charismatic, I mean, the Pentecostal I mean, prosperity thing, keep getting these things confused. Mm-hmm. But when it got woven inside the prosperity gospel message, yeah. together, it became horrible because it turned God into a banker. And it turned our faith, it turned our faith into a ongoing mechanism for sustaining wealth. Uh, yeah. And th- this is the horror of it. And f- uh, for poor people, Amen. for poor black people, this was incredibly powerful. Yeah. Well, for them, would it feel like then they're given some sort of, I would say, facade of control? that they're not finding in other aspects of society because they're systemically oppressed. Right. And this is something that they can go, oh, this is where the world can be right. Right, and that's exactly right. And it also ties into the strong, rugged individualism of the West. Mm. Mm, Yeah. To the entrepreneurial um, uh, merchant, mercantile vision Mm -hmm. of, of agency of the West. That it yeah. all depends on your ingenuity, your stick-to-itiveness, your drive. All of it depends on that. Yeah. And guess what? This gospel is exactly 
what will enable you to achieve what you've been wanting to achieve. So what that means yeah. is for some people, you don't complain ever. You don't complain ever. Yeah. You always speak in faith. Mm. And, and you, you don't complain about anything going wrong in your life. And you don't complain about the government. You don't complain about no. society. You don't complain. You don't complain because you're a person of faith. So you must always speak positively. So well, and I understand wow. the draw then, like, especially when you go into poverty stricken or poverty stricken and oppressed uh, parts of society, why this has got such a stronghold. And you talked in your acts class about how you can't have control and have love. And that mm. in order to choose, like that we are called to love. And it has to be a sustained experience of vulnerability, which uh, as an admittedly very privileged white woman is very uncomfortable for me to think about. I don't like that. I don't like being vulnerable. I don't want to feel vulnerable. And But you talk about how you have to have a desire to release control. Yeah, that, that is so crucial. Mm. And the difficulty is, is that for why the prosperity gospel is so powerful across the, and right now it's across the planet. Yeah. It's all over the world. And the reason yeah. it's so powerful is because you have people who are watching those in power with control and right. call themselves Christian. Right. And these folks, who, who are in poverty and have no control and who they're looking and saying, well, that, that must be the right Christianity. Yeah, that works. Yeah. It worked for them. It should work for me. It should work for me. So, you know, so, so some, and I've, I've had a few people say, you know, push back at this and say, well, you know, Dr. Jennings, I hear what you're saying, but when I, when I live in the house with running water mm -hmm. and I have my kids in the school that I need them to have, and then when life is actually doable for me, then I can, we can talk about, you know, mm. not being in control, but I have no control over anything right now. Yeah. And that, I, that's real. That's real. I, I want to, as we move to, to end, I, we're going to put, if it's okay with you, uh, a link to the Christian Century article in the episode notes uh, so that people can read it. It's a, it's a beautiful piece of writing um, in the title and then central in, in the article is this concept of being caught up and it also then the kind of tension in the article revolves around that you're you're being caught up in the spirit, but then observing some of these things around you, like these two things we just spoke about. Uh, tell us about being caught up in the logic of the spirit, what that means. Well, growing up, I grew up in Baptist and Pentecostal churches, and in both my churches there was um, a clear pedagogy of the spirit of. Mm -hmm yielding your body to the spirit. And, um, you know, when I, as a young man, very young man, as a kid, I would, I would watch people yield themselves to the spirit. And I learned very early that there's a point at which in your Christian life, if you are not sensitive to the spirits moving on you, that then you are not allowing the fullness of the Christian life to fully, to enter you. And um, so the logic of the spirit of being caught up is in worship as in life, there, there is a way of living 
in which you are always attuned to the spirit speaking. And um, you have to, you have to um, get to the point where you live with a question every day. Am I sensing what God is saying to me today at this moment? Am, am, I, am I attuned enough, God, to you that I'm hearing what you're saying? Surely I don't want to come to the end of this day certainly not to the beginning of worship on Sunday and look back at the week and realize that throughout the week I was so deaf and insensitive to your voice that I heard what you had to say and it's it's that logic of being caught up that is supposed to as I was taught drive the moral vision of the Christian life and drive your ethical agency that is you are not you are not a Christian who simply does what the scriptures say. Mm. You are a Christian who yields to the spirit. And in yielding to the spirit, you are going to be doing what the scriptures say. Or should we say more precisely, what the scriptures teach. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've always liked to, and I think it's important theologically to always make a distinction between what the Bible says and what the scriptures teach. Yeah. Because um, the, the, the kind of literalism that gets us in trouble mm -hmm. is one that refuses to recognize the spirit giving us the, that distinction. Amen. So that's what being caught up has always So good. Thank you. Thank you so much. We, I, I have a little thing written. I've written down a number of things that you've said even in this uh, interview. <laughs> um, uh, certainly, uh, Jesus in the crowd, a new image. May we uh, strive for that. But in describing the disciples in, in the Great Commission uh, and, and then the project thereafter, after the silence, rejoicing. And I, I offer that now to all of us here and to those listening as a prayer that we're in a time of we don't know, but, but uh, may there be after the silence some rejoicing. Uh, we, we've asked you if you could kind of uh, conclude our little three-part series here and our conversation with you by offering us a word or a prayer or a devotional reflection that would act as the, the last words of the series. We won't, we won't say anything like that after that. We'll stop recording and then, and then have a conversation with you. But if you could do that, we'd be, uh, we'd be really grateful. I'd be glad to do that. So let, let, let's return to that Acts 11 passage you just mentioned. And let me just say a few words and then I'll close us with a, a brief little prayer. Uh, that Acts 11 passage, and again, remembering that this is the aftermath of Acts 10. This is the aftermath of something Peter, even at the point of Acts 11, could not yet comprehend what had happened to him. And what had happened to him is us. We had become a part of his story in ways that he had not imagined. We are only here together because of that sheet lowered in Acts 10. We're only here because he lost his fight with God. And here in Acts 11, you know, he comes to his disciples, his colleagues, who, as I said earlier, were just furious with him. But it's that question they asked him that I want us to, to end thinking about. It's the question of why. Why? did you go to them? Why did you go to the Gentiles? 
And it's, it's, it's a loaded question. It's why did you violate our law, especially those of us who are trying to renew Israel? We are diaspora. We see that it's necessary to renew Israel and you're messing that up. It's why did you, why did you uh, make yourself unclean? Why did you go among our enemies, those who are in league, not only with the Romans, but a Roman centurion for God's sake? Why did you go among the, this one, even though we think he's a good one, he's still a centurion. Why did you go? And Peter's response, as I said earlier, was, I don't want to, but God made me. God was doing something. And it's that, it's that why that I think that is so important for us right now. God wants all of us to hear the why. And the why God wants all of us to hear is why won't you go where I want you to go and be with who I want you to be with? Why won't you? at this crucial moment. Of course, we can't physically go given the pandemic, but maybe in this crucial moment, God is preparing us for the day when either because of a vaccine or something else, we'll be able to go. And even if we can't go to reach out now digitally, but the point is, is that maybe God's preparing us to finally answer the why so that we can be the cause of a new silence and a new praise that's my hope so let's pray we give you thanks oh god for your many blessings to us of life of a measure of health of enough strength to make it through the end of the day and most importantly, of your presence to guide and to cheer as the song says. We are so thankful that you lead us. And we ask that you would continue to lead each and all of us, all those listening, all those who will see this, wherever they are and whatever they're going through. My prayer is that they would sense your leading, that they would sense you bring them beyond where they are to where you want them to be. And that place is a place of togetherness with others. I ask, oh God, that by your spirit, you would renew in us the power of communion. Renew in us the power of gathering. Draw it out of us so that we might become those who gather people together that we through our lives and through our families' lives may be boundary breakers, may be people who draw and weave together new patterns of life together. Do this, not simply for us, but for the sake of the kingdom, the kingdom that you have brought about and are bringing about. We are so thankful that we serve a living God and that you indeed are our God. 
We pray this in the name of the one who rose from the dead with all power in his hands and who smiled at us and said, let's get started. Amen.